Okay, shall we just take your seats? Um, as Steve said, my name's Andrew, I'm part of the team here, and uh, this morning we're going to carry on in our uh, series entitled Brave. Should come up in a moment, hopefully, in a minute. Brave. Great. And um, last week, if you remember, Steve uh, started to share from the book of Esther, and he, he looked at chapter 1 and 2, give a great word about being fearless, at, you know, in all circumstances. And uh, today I'm going to look at chapter 3 and 4 from Esther. And just to bring you up to speed, I'm going to really summarize very quickly chapter 3. I'm not going to summarize chapter 4, but I'm going to actually sort of address chapter 4 um, as I actually sort of share with you this morning. So in chapter 3, just by way of bringing people up to date, um, I just want to say to you this. Chapter 3 is a, a very pivotal chapter in the book of Esther. We are introduced to a man by the name of Haman. Haman is an evil individual. He's evil to the core, and we'll see why in a moment. King Xerxes, that was the king at the time, actually sort of uh, promoted Haman. And for some unknown reason, he did that. There's no reason at all why he should have, because really, if anybody should have been promoted, it should have been Mordecai, because Mordecai, in chapter 2, actually saved the king's life. But for some unknown reason, in the, in the plan and the purposes of God, sort of uh, King Xerxes raises up and promotes uh, Haman. And then he issues a command, and the command went something like this, that everybody in the whole of the land, all the nobles in Included, needed to bow the knee and, and pay honour to Haman. Now, every nobleman did, except for Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow the knee. Eventually, of course, that gets back to Haman. And Haman was absolutely enraged. And uh, when he discovered that Mordecai was a Jew, then he set in motion plans to wipe out all the Jews in the whole of the Persian Empire. And he goes to the king and he says to the king... Look, listen, there's a, there's, a, there's a group of people, he doesn't name their name, you know, he's quite a sophisticated manipulator, is, is uh, Haman. He doesn't name their name, he said, listen, there's a group of people here that's causing you trouble. And the king, of course, says, listen, here's my signet ring, you go and do what you want. You go and issue whatever command you want. And Haman goes and he issues a command that all the Jews, from the date of that decree, will be killed in 12 months' time, all on one day. Or every Jew... Man, woman, and child, 12 months from the date of that decree, will all be slaughtered, would all be murdered on one day. And what happens next is this. He takes this decree and he sends it out to all the provinces of, 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 in Persia so that they can prepare for this one day. And when you read the account, it reads as if he's almost enjoying it. He's almost enjoying planning it. In fact, after the king gives him permission to do this, they sit down and exchange a glass of wine together. This man was absolutely untouched by the plight of these people that he was about to pass the command for them to be slaughtered. He was totally untouched by them. I wonder how the Jews must have felt when they heard about this command. Now, the Jews had actually become quite a settled sort of group of people in Susa. The Jews themselves were sort of well integrated into the fabric, if you like, of the Persian Empire. They went about their business day by day, sort of, uh, you know, exchanging goods and buying and selling and coming home in the evening, sitting down with their families, going to bed and getting up in the morning. They weren't in any physical threat at all. Imagine what they must have felt like when they read this degree. When they read this, this, this Holocaust decree, it must have come like a, a, 
a shock to them. They, I, I'm just trying to put into words what they must have felt like. They must have been absolutely overwhelmed with total disbelief about what's happening. Even the people in the city of Susa who weren't Jews were totally bewildered by, by the decree that came out. They couldn't make sense of it. I want to say this to you. They must have been scared stiff. Because all the commands of the king, every command that the king actually issued could not be revoked only by the king. So it wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't something that may be going to happen in 12 months' time. This was a certainty. In 12 months' time, all the Jews, men, women, and children, and in fact, if you read it, it says little children. So we're talking about babies would be slaughtered on that one day. Would be totally slaughtered on that one day. In short, you know, they must have been totally blindsided by the situation. They didn't see it coming. You know, even the people in Susa didn't see it coming. And yet it came. And it was a situation that's totally outside of their control. They were powerless in the natural to do anything about it. It was an inescapable law that came down from on high. In short, they were uh, blindsided by the circumstances that faced them. And they were powerless to do anything about it. I wonder if that chimes sometimes with how things happen in our lives. I don't know about yourself, but stuff happens, doesn't it? Sometimes it's because we're part of a fallen world. Sometimes it's as a result of our own uh, sin, the things that we do and say. But, you know, sometimes it's it's a result of the enemy itself. How often are we blindsided by circumstances? You know, sometimes we're in a relationship with someone and it seems to be going well. And then that relationship finishes and suddenly we're blindsided by circumstances. Sometimes we go to the doctor thinking, you know, just prescribe me a few antibiotics and I'll be okay. A few sympathetic words and I can go back to do whatever I was doing, then suddenly you have a bad report, blindsided by circumstances. Sometimes you might think that you're okay with with your colleagues at work, you get on with them quite well, and then you start to share your testimony and witness, and then they begin to laugh and ridicule at you. You begin to be sort of overlooked for promotion. Suddenly you're blindsided by the circumstances that you're in. During my last church, we had a, a Christian nursery, and my wife used to manage the Christian nursery, and it was a good Christian nursery, We refused to take the word Christian off the title of the nursery. And uh, everything was going really well. Uh, Ofsted came down. They had a problem with the word Christian, but we refused to take it out. We still had a good report. The staff were on board because the staff knew that this was part of our outreach programs to see lives changed. We had a big waiting list. We had a good reputation uh, within the town. Then one day... One of the parents of the children came in and said to Amanda, said, Amanda, could I just have a quick word with you? Amanda said, yeah, come into the office, come into the office. So this lady came into the office and had a chat with Amanda. And she said these words, she said, do you know, Amanda, that is an estate agent down the road from your nursery whose employees are praying for your death? There was a coven in this particular estate agent that, have been, that are praying for your death. Amanda could not believe it. She was totally blindsided by it. She didn't know what to say. She said, well, I'm just, I'm just a, a nursery manager. Why are they picking on me? She wasn't just a nursery manager. But that's how you feel sometimes, isn't it, when, when circumstances blindside you like that? And something similar was happening in the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people in Susa and the rest of the Persian Empire, but to a far greater degree than this. They were blindsided by the circumstances they found themselves in. How do we cope 
when we are blindsided by circumstances? How do we actually cope when the circumstances in front of us seemingly overwhelm us and we feel powerless to do anything about it? I don't know about you, but sometimes my response is to shove my head under the pillow, you know, put my head in the sand and hope it will all go away because this is just too big for me. Or I quit and pull back. I shrink back. But you know, God does not want us to shrink back. Church, he does not want us to shrink back. He wants us to stand firm and he wants our lives to make a difference. He wants us to be a people of impact, a people of influence. He wants us to shake the world around us so that it comes in line with his good and perfect will. He wants us to be a people who bring his rule and reign into every situation that we're confronted with and in every life that we can touch. That's our purpose. Our purpose. But, you know, sometimes that purpose can kind of slip through our fingers, like sand through our fingers, you know, when when we're confronted by circumstances that are overwhelming. So how do we cope when we're blindsided by circumstances, way outside of our control, way beyond anything that we can actually deal with ourselves? I want to just bring out two points this morning, one from chapter 3 and one from chapter 4. And the first point I want you to sort of write down in your little sort of um, notes is this. Don't bow down. Don't bow down. Don't bow down to your circumstances. Isn't it amazing that when this command from King Xerxes came for everyone to bow down, Haman, uh, to Haman, the only one that actually sort of refused to bow down was Mordecai. Everybody else, you know, bowed down, but Mordecai refused to bow down. And you know what? He knew that this would get back to the king. He knew that this would get back to Haman. So this was a brave and courageous act on the part of Mordecai. Mordecai is a great hero of mine when, when, I, when, when he gets to chapter 3. He wasn't such a hero of mine in chapter 2, but he, by chapter 3, he's one of my heroes. You know, uh, he refuses to actually bow down. Now listen, he knew that to not bow down before Haman was disobeying the command of a king. Now that's called treason. And treason, when it comes to punishment, is this, execution. And not only was he sort of uh, endangering his life in terms of uh, uh, possible execution from the king, he was also actually antagonizing probably the most powerful and evil man on planet earth at that point in time. And that man was Haman. Listen, Haman was the personification of evil itself. This is a man who was prepared to wipe out the whole people group. Do you know, there were 12 million Jews living in Persia at that time. So on one day, this man was prepared to wipe out 12 million Jews. Including what the scripture says is little children. He was heartless. There was no exception to this holocaust. This was ethnic cleansing on a totally different scale. The heart of Haman was as dark as it actually gets. Now let me say this to you this morning and and hear me about this. I don't want to glorify the enemy. I don't want, in one sense, to give the enemy too much airspace, you know, an airtime, sorry, airtime. I, I, I don't want to do that. But equally, we need to realize that we are in a battle. And, one of the, and the enemy of our soul, the enemy of the kingdom, is called the devil. And we need to understand some of these principles because unless we understand that we're in a spiritual warfare, sooner or later we will fail to stand, as we will see. We have an enemy, and if we don't understand his schemes, then I tell you what, we're at a disadvantage. Now, I'm not glorifying the enemy, but I'm actually saying this, we have one. And he loves, us, loves it when we don't talk about him. Because then he can get on with his business, and, and uh, uh, sort of behind the scenes without us actually knowing. 
But the Bible says he's a murderer from birth. He's a liar. He's, a, he's the one that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And when I look at this character, Haman, I see him as a type of our enemy. He was heartless. He was brutal. He was cruel. He was full of pride. His colossal plan, his scheme for the annihilation of the Jews is worthy of its main instigator. And the main instigator was not Haman, it was the devil himself. Listen, the devil knew that God had promised the Messiah would come from the house of David. How could the devil stop the Messiah coming? Therefore, he needed to get hold of and destroy the house of David. How could he destroy, destroy, destroy the house of David? He did it by planning to destroy the Jews. Destroy the Jews, destroy the house of David, and then the Messiah won't come. It's a master plan. He didn't realize that he wasn't in control, but it was a master plan. That's why Steve was right last week when he said, our current future is rooted back, way back in the book of Esther. Kill the Jews and kill the plan of God. And he worked through Haman. See, we do not fight against sort of flesh and blood, do we? We fight against the principalities and powers. That's what it talks about in Ephesians 6. And we need to be a people that realize we're in a spiritual battle. I believe that one of the reasons that Mordecai stood strong when everybody else was bowing the knee was because for the first time for a long time he realized that he was in a spiritual battle. He realized that he had to make a choice. Am I going to stand for God or am I going to go with everybody else and bow down uh, uh, in front of this uh, Agai, um, a uh, descendant of the Amalekite? Do you know, am I, I going to bow down to the circumstances or am, am I going to go with God? And he chose to go with God. He refused to bow down. And I want to say to you this morning, church, listen, refuse to bow down to your circumstances. Your circumstances, no matter how bad they are, and I tell you what, it's not as bad as these guys were facing. No matter how bad your circumstances are, they are not the final word over your life. They're not the final word. It's not the end of your story. Refuse to be defined, distracted, defeated, or disqualified from the plans and purposes of God because of the circumstances you find yourself in. Be strong. We should be a people who shape our circumstances, not a people who are shaped by our circumstances. We are called overcomers in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. That's our DNA. That's the one that's living in us. We should be a people who are sort of look at the picture, and even though we can't see the full picture with our natural eyes, we should, with our spiritual eyes, realize that there's more for us than against us. We should be a people that realize that sort of we have an Esther in Christ Jesus who is going to go before the throne of God and intercede for us day by day. We need to be a people that see beyond the, the, the superficial, see beyond that which is in front of us and realize that we're actually sort of in a war, in warfare. It was this that, re, that caused Mordecai not to bow down. It wasn't because he had a personal grudge against Haman. It wasn't because he was jealous of the fact that Haman was promoted, even though if you read chapter three, 2, really it should be Haman that was promoted. No, it was because he recognized from the, at that moment that he was in a spiritual battle. And Mordecai's moral elevation, if you like, was never higher than at this point in time in the story. Gone, if you like, was that pragmatic, slightly political Mordecai that we saw in chapter 2. Gone is that sort of um, craft, slightly crafty man who said to Esther, keep your Jewishness quiet from everybody else. 
Gone was that. Now we stood a man who'd come alive. His conscience was, was on fire. His conscience was alert now to the real situation that confronted him. And he chose to serve his God. He no longer opted for compromise. But instead he stood as a godly man in front of an evil man called Haman. He became a man of faith. He became a man of example. This is how we make our lives count. This is how we make our lives count. This is, this is how, we, we, uh, how we make a difference. This is, this is how we become significant, even amongst the most difficult of circumstances. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord roam round the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Do you know, when we make a stand, God's eyes are roaming around the earth. He's looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him. And what does he do when he sees it? He comes to them straight away and strengthens them, gives them the resolves to do the thing that they know deep in their heart they need to do. Day by day, Mordecai refused to stand down. I believe that God's eyes was roaming around the earth looking for his heart so he could strengthen his heart. That's the God that we have. That's the God that we serve. And I believe it's God is calling us to be men and women just like Mordecai. He's looking for men and women to step out and say, do you know what? Enough's enough. I'm no longer going to sort of bow down to my circumstances. I'm no longer going to go with the crowd. Instead, I'm going to stand for God. And when he sees that, his eye rests upon us. And then his strength comes into us. And then we're able to do far more than we can possibly think, hope, or imagine because he's there with us. That's the kind of God we serve, you know? That's the kind of God we serve. Perhaps this morning, you've been sort of rubbing shoulders with people in the world and you've become a little bit like them. That there's very little difference perhaps between you and some of your work colleagues or between you and some of your family who are not saved or between you and some of your friends. And, and, and there's very little uh, you know, uh, difference between you two. John, now's the time to stand, isn't it? Now's the time to stand. This is our moment. Don't shrink back. Do a Mordecai. Stand firm and allow God's eyes to rest upon you and give you the resolve to do these things. Listen, I know it's difficult to stand against the circumstances that we are, uh, often find ourselves in. I read this little snippet the other, the other day. It's about um, Khrushchev, who was the sort of um, premier of the Soviet Union. And he simply said this, during his years, years as, a premier, or as premier of the Soviet Union, Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and the atrocities of Joseph Stalin. Once, as he, was, uh, as he censured Stalin in a public meeting, he was interrupted by a shout from a heckler in the audience. You were one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Who said that? Roared back Khrushchev. An agonizing silence fell on that meeting. No one moved a muscle. No one said a word. Then Khrushchev replied very quietly, perhaps now you know why. Perhaps now you know why. It is very difficult not to bow to our circumstances. Very difficult not to go with the world. So I want to give you two little snippets, two little encouragements before I move on to my next section to help you stand strong when the circumstances around you seemingly are overwhelming you. And the first one is this. Our enemy is totally and utterly and eternally defeated. Listen, the enemy of your soul is totally defeated. 
What's going on in your life now is not a battle between two equal powers for your life. Listen, the enemy is to be defeated. Jesus is the king. He has won the battle. He is on the throne. He's the one that gets to decide history. Not the enemy. Not you. Him. He's the one on the throne. He's the one that's defeated the enemy. And he's defeated him at every juncture in history. When he was in heaven, he cast him out of heaven. When he came to the cross, he triumphed over, openly over him. When, when he sort of um, saw him in, 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 in hell itself, he took the, key, the keys of death and Hades. And when he sees him in eternity, he's going to stick him in the fiery lake forever. I tell you, the enemy is a loser. He's got a big L on his head. I don't understand why sometimes people end up following him rather than following the victor. And let me say this. The one who's had the absolute victory is living in you and I. The king is living in you and I. In you is a victor. In you is a warrior. In you is someone who is, if you like, sort of was born a babe, but absolutely was God himself, and he's living in you and me. I tell you what, we haven't got to bow to our circumstances. We haven't got to sort of bow the knee and say, oh God, poor me. Oh God, why is he picking on me? What, what, you know, what's happening? Let me tell you, friends, if Mordecai did that, as we'll see, he would never inspired uh, Esther to do anything, and who knows what would have happened. No, we need to be a people who understand that the enemy is defeated. That's why the scripture says this, greater is he that's within you than he that's within the world. And we need to understand what's being said there. Everything that is in God is in you, in Christ Jesus, so nothing can absolutely overcome you. No weapon formed against you will stand. Why? Because Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. The enemy is defeated. Do not bow down. Stand firm. He that is within you is greater than the circumstances or he that's in the world. Let me say this, another one, to just encourage you to stand firm. God trusts you in the most dire of circumstances more than you trust yourself. You need to hear this. God trusts you in the midst of your circumstances more than you trust yourself. Now I say that because the scripture tells us so. The scripture says this, he will not tempt us, he will not try us beyond that which we can endure. That means that the him who is on the throne, the one who controls all things, has got the hand on the thermostat of our situations and our circumstances, and he will never turn the thermostat up to a point where you and I can't cope with it. That is reassuring, isn't it? So when you have circumstances that come against you, you need to remember this. Hey, hang on. I can't see the wood for the trees, but I'm believing that my God has got his hand on the thermostat of the circumstances, and therefore I will not fear. He will never test us beyond which we, that which we can endure. And therefore, we don't need to bow down at the altar of self-pity. Do you know, I tell you what, a lot of counseling that I've come across, actually, it's a lot of self-pity. It's people kind of making excuses not to follow Jesus because, oh, well, I'm too weak. You know, you know this situation is so overwhelming, Andrew, if you only knew my situation. I thought, well, I don't know your situation. I'm glad I don't know your situation fully. But we have a one on, on the throne that does. And he says to me, he'll never tempt you. He'll never sort of put a trial in front of you that you can't actually overcome. Let's refuse to bow down when the majority goes in one direction. Let's refuse to bow down to pragmatism and sort of realism. Uh, uh, even though they might look in the natural, the best way to go forward, I want to tell you they're not. The best way to go forward is always with the victor. The best way to go forward is always with the victor. 
But we need to refuse to believe anything that will cause us to bow down to our circumstances. I read this the other day. It's about um, um, uh, an Alaskan uh, biologist said this. The late Earl J. Fleming, an Alaskan state biologist, was perhaps the only man to investigate objectively the bear's reputation for attacking human beings. When Fleming encountered a bear, he neither ran nor shot. At the end of his unique study, he had encountered 81 brown bears. And although several staged mock charges, not one of them actually attacked. Not one of them actually attacked. Listen, the bear of your circumstances will mock charge you. They, 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 will, they will press in. You'll, you'll, you'll feel the breath of the bear right in front of you. But I tell you what, he cannot overcome you. He cannot overcome you. We need to be a people who stand even when we're scared, who are prepared to sort of risk our reputation. Because at the end of the day, this is going to happen. We are going to be victors. And the reason we're going to be victors is because Jesus has already won. We sang it this morning. He's already won. Now, can I give you a little bit of caution here? Because I don't want you to think that life, therefore, is going to be easy when you come to Jesus. Because it ain't going to be easy. When I, when I looked at Mordecai uh, in, in, in chapters 3, um, I thought to myself, this man is a brave man. He stood before, the, uh, he refused to bow down, and uh, he's a brave man. Surely God's going to deliver him out of that situation. Do you know what? Who was the catalyst? Who was the catalyst for this holocaust? It was Mordecai, wasn't it? Because Mordecai refused to bow down before him, what happened is that Haman then said, right, in that case, I am now going to wipe out the whole lot of Jews. I'm going to wipe the whole lot out. It actually got worse. It got worse for Mordecai. Now, without spoiling the story, right, it does get better at the end. And sometimes, you know, even when it gets worse, and sometimes it does, doesn't it, if we're honest? How many times have we stood for Christ and then, whoof, a whole wave of stuff has hit us? How many times have we sort of done what the, the right thing and, and the consequences sometimes have been sort of pretty bad for us? But I want to say this to you. Stand firm because in the end, God will come through for you. You will be the victor. He will work all things out according to his will. He will cause everything to conform to his will, his plan, and his purposes. Sometimes we just got to outlast the enemy. We just got to keep sticking in there. And eventually, I want to tell you, we will come, we'll become victorious in Christ Jesus. Don't bow down to your circumstances. That's point one. If you're going to have a life of significance, if you're going to do something amazing for God, if you're going to really kind of walk the walk that Christ has called you to do, refuse to bow down. Secondly, and this is taken from chapter four, really. Not only do we must refuse to uh, bow down to our circumstances, but we need to look to exploiting them. We need to exploit our circumstances. In other words, we need to milk our circumstances to advance our own spiritual good and for the good of the kingdom. We really do. We need to take our circumstances and see how we can use the circumstances, no matter how bad they are, to advance our own spiritual goodness and, and, and the goodness of God's purposes. Now, at various points in, in our lives, God seems to kind of inject moments into the ebb and flow of our lives, uh, opportunities so that we can do some good stuff, you know, something good. It happens, doesn't it? 
there's, there's, there's moments when he comes and, and suddenly we see that this is a divine moment, a kind of a super, with supernatural potential and with eternal consequences. Those, those little moments in our lives, they're key moments for us to grow. They're key moments for us to move forward. Now, the Bible has a word for that, and the Bible calls these moments kairos moments. Kairos moments. Now, the Greeks had two words for, for time. One was chronos, which actually, from where we get chronological, it's about days, weeks, months, and years. But also, they had a word uh, for, for something totally different called kairos. Now, kairos, if you like, is a quality uh, of a moment. It's a particular moment in time, a critical moment. James Emery White describes a kairos moment like this. It's a moment pregnant with eternal significance and possibility. It's a moment when we are confronted with a choice or decision or potential action that holds the deepest level of significance for who we are, who we are becoming, and what life impact will be. Let me read that again. I I love this one. It's not in scriptures, but it's really good. It's a moment pregnant with eternal significance and possibility. It's a moment when we are confronted with a choice or decision or potential action that holds the deepest level of significance for who we are, who we are becoming, and what our life impact will be. The problem is this. So often our kairos moment is hidden in the midst of the most dire of circumstances that we are confronted with. And as we see now with Esther, that was her problem. Listen, she had a Kairos moment, but actually it was hidden in the midst of the most awful of circumstances. And these circumstances was the potential annihilation of the Jewish race. So the question is, would she see that? Would she seize it? Would she so become everything that God really intended her to become? Would she seize this Kairos moment and move from where she is to where God would want her to be? That's the story, I believe, that unfolds in chapter 4. And I believe, if, we, if, you, if you read that story, I believe that we, we see a journey, if you like, of Esther. Esther is a journey. I've summarized it in, in your notes. You know, it, it starts off with superficial, then it says subtle no, but eventually she says yes. But it's a journey. And I'd like to map a little bit of that journey out for you this morning. As a result of Mordecai's personal stand, uh, the Jewish nation was at risk of annihilation. And so this was much bigger than a personal thing between him and Haman now. Now, the only way that he could get that law repealed is for someone to go in and see the king himself and actually say to the king, listen, do you realize what's happening, king? And on the day, 12 months from hence, all of the Jewish nation is going to be sort of uh, wiped out. He needed an intercessor. There's a, there's a, there's a sermon in that in, in and of itself, isn't there? Now, that's what, that's, what, uh, that's what sort of Mordecai needed, an intercessor. So, along with everybody else, he was in sackcloth and ashes, and he decides to go to the palace gate, the king's gate, and there he was in sackcloth and ashes, moaning and groaning be, before the gates. And word gets back to, to Esther, and the word gets back to Esther uh, that the Mordecai is outside the gate in sackcloth and ashes. What was Esther's first response? To send him a new set of clothes. And I'm thinking, we're talking here about the annihilation of 12 million people, and you actually send him a fresh set of clothes. I couldn't believe it. I'm sure Mordecai couldn't believe it. Now, some of you might want to be kind to Esther at this stage. I'm probably a little bit less kind to her than you guys are, right? You might think, well, hang on, Andrew. She was actually in the palace, cut off from the real world, and therefore it might well be that sort of Esther didn't know anything about this edict that had gone out. Possibility. 
She might have thought, well, do you know what? Um, uh, if, if the king or any representatives, representative of the king sees her, uh, in, him in sackcloth and ashes by the palace gate, they will come out and arrest him, and, and who knows what would happen, because the king had to be protected and insulated from any of the mess of the world, because otherwise that would reflect negatively, if you like, on his rule and reign. That might be the case. But, you know, I understand this. Esther was brought up as a Jew. She understood what it meant to wear sackcloth and ashes. She must have known deep down that somehow or other, um, Mordecai was actually sort of uh, experiencing something of significant sort of uh, 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 battle going on in, in his spirit because otherwise he wouldn't be in that situation. She was Jew. She would understand this. But she sends him some clothes. That's all she does, sends him some clothes. I know I'm being a bit hard on Esther here. But at the same time, I think we need to understand that Esther's response was totally superficial. Didn't meet the need at all. But before we're too hard on Esther, I want us to reflect on the fact that perhaps sometimes that's exactly how we respond. When we're in situations that are way beyond us, when we, when we can't see the wood for the tree, quite often we seek a solution that involves the very lowest level of commitment. We opt for the, the way of least inconvenience. We opt for a way of least soul searching. We opt for a way of least sacrifice in order to sort of sort, before, you know, in order to sort out the circumstances. We know, we, we know this happens. It happens all the time. We know parents that prefer to buy the love and affection, not that it's possible to do that, buy the love and affection of their kids rather than putting in the hard hours of actually spending time with them. It's a totally superficial response. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people do it. We know people, don't we, that go to sort of counselling you know, with their partners and one partner is really radical and they want to change, etc. But the other partner says, do you know what? Ah. I come to counselling, but really they're not prepared to make the real changes deep down in their, in, in their heart to become the different kind of person in order, in order to make that relationship work. It happens all the time, doesn't it? It's too superficial a response to the situation. We have people that go to debt counselling and yeah, they get a nice little sort of mock-up of, of income and outgoings and, and they see sort of these things need to kind of be sorted, on, sorted out. But what happens? They fail to adjust their spending habits or... They're back in the same situation. Too superficial a response. Why do we have a superficial response as almost our default? Why do we have that? I'll tell you this. This is why. Because every time we have an opportunity that we can exploit, every time we have a Kairos moment, there's something else that comes alongside with it. And the thing that comes alongside a Kairos moment is this. A price tag. It comes with a price tag. It comes with a price tag. See, Mordecai refuses to accept the clothes and sends back a message and says, listen, go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. That's the message that he gives back to, to um, uh, Esther. What was Esther's second response? This is Esther's second response to, to that request of actually going into the king's presence. He says, she says this, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. 30 days have passed which have uh, 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 since I've been called 
to the king. That was her second response. Do you know what? That is a subtle but still no. It's a subtle but it's a still no. 30 days since I was called to the king. In those days, you couldn't just walk into the king's presence without an appointment, without sort of, uh, uh, about being uninvited. And if you did, um, it was a capital offence. And in fact, they, they had guards around him with swords to make sure that that capital offence is sort of meted out uh, straight away. In essence, what, what she was saying, what, es- uh, what Esther was saying to Mordecai, said, look, Mordecai, be reasonable. I, I, look, I, I love to help. I, I know the problem now. You know, I, I can see the opportunity, but, you know, the, the, this is just too difficult for me. I mean, surely, surely, Mordecai, you understand this. Surely, you, you know that it's just simply too hard. Surely, you know that you're asking me to, 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 to do too much. She wanted, to let, she wanted Mordecai to let her off the hook. And I thought to myself when I was preparing this, how many times have I let people off the hook? How many times, instead of calling what God's put into people out of them, I've just been seduced by the arguments that Esther put to, to Mordecai. Oh, well, yeah, actually, it probably is too difficult for them. Oh, yeah, it is a bit costly. Perhaps I have been a bit over-enthusiastic about, about this. And I've backed off. How many times have we left ourselves off the hook? problem's too big, I'm too small. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. See, we all want a miracle in our lives. We all want to be significant. We all want to make an impact. But the problem is that not many of us want to place ourselves in a situation where it requires a miracle. We like to sit in a boat, we like, but we'd like sort of at the same time, somehow or other, for, for, for us to walk on water. So what we end up doing is staying in the boat because we won't position ourselves in such a place that God requires a, that it requires a miracle for God. You know, if Jesus, we want a miracle. If Jesus came and, and said to us, you know, there's a few loaves, you go and feed 5,000, and would we do that walk? Would we really do that walk? Would we really place ourselves in a position that, that we required a miracle? I doubt it very much at times. I doubt it very much at times. I love the fact that Mordecai refused to let Esther off the hook. Listen to what, what, what uh, um, Mordecai said again to, to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Ooh, Mordecai. I tell you, Mordecai was really on fire now. He was saying to, to, to Esther, who wanted to let him off the hook, no, I am not letting you off the hook. This is your moment, Esther. This is your opportunity. This is your Kairos moment. You know, this is why God has placed you there. Come on, seize it. It might cost you, but you need to seize it. This is your life-defining moment. This is a moment where you can start shaping history. So seize your Kairos moment. But what I like about this is that he was absolutely honest. He said, and do you know what? Esther, if you don't, then God somehow or other will raise up someone else to save the Jews. Listen, I believe God wants us to be significant, but we need to understand this. None of us, none of us are indispensable. 
God is offering to work in and through our lives to make us significant. But if we don't stand up and seize that significant moment, that Kairos moment, let me say this to you. You know, God can raise someone else up to do it. If we as a church don't seize our Kairos moments in this city, let me say this. We are not indispensable for the plans and purposes of God. God can raise up other people in this city to do the work that, if, that we need to do if we refuse to do it. It's as simple as that. We need to understand that he's on the throne. We are not on the throne. And we need to be a people that seize our Kairos moments. Let me say this. Never underestimate the power of a godly challenge. I have backed off so many times when I should have pushed people, when I should have pulled out of them, if you like, that which God has put into them. I should have been a bit like the angel with Gideon. Go in the strength that you already have. We are people that, uh, in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead. That's amazing, isn't it? In you and I. Sinners saved by grace. And yet God has so, sort of, so loved us that he's kind of gave himself up for us and now he's living in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. I tell you what, we are the most powerful people on planet earth. Listen, I, I had to laugh when they talked about Donald Trump, right? He said of Donald Trump, he's the most powerful man on earth. I thought, no he's not. I thought, no he's not. A Christian who got born again at one minute before that announcement was made is much more powerful, potentially, than Donald Trump. We need to understand these things. Greater is he that's within us than he that's within the world. So never, ever, you know, underestimate the power of a godly challenge. Without those moments, without being challenged, then I suspect like Esther, we too may persist in the comfort zone or in the compromising situations that we found ourselves. Perhaps God is challenging you this morning. Perhaps he's challenging you this morning. Perhaps he's challenged to you this morning is to follow him with greater integrity. Perhaps he's saying, stop bowing down to the stuff that's ruining your life. Start looking at, stop looking at stuff that's ruining your life. Start sort of, uh, uh, refuse to bow down to the anger that's causing so much hassle in your life. Stop being pragmatic. Stop being political. Uh, uh, you know, stop being sort of manipulative in the way, of, uh, in the way you deal with people. That's the challenge. Stand up. Don't go that way. Go godly way. Be a man or woman of integrity. Perhaps some of you this morning, he's saying this, isn't it about time you picked up the cross? Isn't it about time you picked up his cross? Isn't it about time that you picked up his plans and purposes for your life? For so long, we have been making excuses. For so long, we've been belittling ourselves. For so long, we've been a bit like Esther. This is impossible for me. Do you know this morning, perhaps the challenge to you is this. Don't bow down to such things. Greater is he that's in you than the circumstances that surrounds you. Listen, we need to stand and go for what God has in store for us. Perhaps the challenge to some people here this morning is to come off the fence. Perhaps this morning you know fully well that you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. The challenge for you is to come off the fence. Stop trying to run your life. Hand your life over to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Listen, he's not a loser. He's a winner. And he wants the very best for you. He wants to take you out of the dark, kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of light. He wants to do good to you. He's a good, good father. Perhaps that's the challenge for some people here tonight, uh, this morning. So, never underestimate the power of a godly challenge. Why? Because actually, if you read this story, it changed the mindset of, of Esther entirely. 
Listen to what she now says. She starts off, doesn't she, with a sort of you know, superficial response. Then she sort of looks at it and says it's a subtle no. But now at the end, it's a brave yes. Listen to the words of Esther. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. By Jove, the girl has got it. She is now seizing her Kairos moment. She now realizes that her life makes sense. She realizes that, yes, perhaps this is the moment where God has put me into a royal position for such a time as this. Everything seems to make sense to her now from a spiritual point of view. Now, actually, it didn't make sense from a financial point of view or a professional point of view or a common sense point of view. From a God point of view, it made total sense. And she seized that moment. The reason that we often miss that moment, the reason we often fail to seize our Kairos moment, is because we don't understand the level of sacrifice that's demanded. Listen, Esther was prepared to die. That, that, that scripture, if I perish, I perish. Now the Hebrew construction for that makes it clear that she is not talking about death as one possible outcome. Okay, The actual structure suggests this. It's an almost inevitable outcome given the choice that she's making. So in order to seize our Kairos moment, we need to be a people of faith. We need to be people who are prepared to take risks. Now, she was going to risk her life. What's God asking us to risk? What is, ask, what is he asking us to risk? Perhaps to look a bit of like a fool in front of our colleagues? So what? So what? Perhaps he's asking us to be a bit more inconvenienced. Perhaps a bit more time given to him. I'm amazed yesterday that we had two days and, uh, uh, you know, in a GLS and, and perhaps some people have stayed away perhaps this morning because they had two days at a GLS. Do you know what, man? It was pathetic. There's no other word for it. You know, here's Esther, season of Kairos moment. If I perish, I perish. And there's some people thinking, you know, I'll give them two days to God this week already. I can't give them a third day. We need to be a people who are brave and courageous. James Emery White says this, Given the chance to choose greatness through sacrifice... Most of us would choose a life of mediocrity. We would not choose greatness because we don't want to do without or we don't want to be inconvenienced. It's true, you know. When I look at, when I look at Christianity in the West and compare it to the Christianity I see elsewhere in the world, I tell you sometimes, my heart sinks because sometimes I think, to be honest, we have, a cheap, we have cheapened the cost of actually following Christ in the West. And a cheap Christianity will no longer cut the ice with the world that we are in. It will not cut the ice. People need to see some radical people who are prepared to do radical things. I was reading a, a little article, I forget where it was now, uh, and it was about a church there. And do you know what? Several of their members sold their car and gave the money away to the, to the, law, to, to, to the poor. Some people gave up holidays and, and gave their money away. We need to be a people who understand something about, the, about being radical in these days radical in these days. You see, the thing at the end was this. Esther was now living for a cause greater than herself. She was no longer living for herself. She was no longer giving that superficial response. She was no longer just saying things like, Do you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'd love to help you, but I know the need, I know the opportunity, but I'm not prepared to pay the price. At the end, she said, do you know what? I'm all in. I'm all in. 
Anything, anything that you want me to do now, Mordecai, I'm all in. If I perish, I perish. And she was living for a cause. Do you know what? We have a great cause, don't we? We want to make Christ famous in this city and in this nation. We have a great cause. Don't we want to see people's lives change for the better? We want to see marriages restored. We want to see families healthy. We want to see whole communities transformed by the power of the gospel. That's what Christ has called us to do. That's a cause, isn't it? The problem is this. Often in our Kairos moments, those moments where we can make a real, eternal, significant and difference, this is what happens. We look at the Kairos moment and we see the Kairos moment up there. But then we start looking at the cost and we think, oh, hang on, uh, a bit of rejection might come that way. Or uh, uh, hang on, what, what, what if people let me down? Or hang on, um, what if I'm unsuccessful? Uh, hang on, can I really fit this into my busy schedule? And before long, the cost itself seems so big that we miss the kairos moment. But how about, instead of just looking at the cost, we actually look at the cause? What about saying, do you know what? The cost is up there, but hang on. Hey, what about the cause? What about the wonder of seeing people's lives transformed? What about the, the wonder of seeing families so restored and, and coming to church on Sunday and actually praising and worshipping in this place and giving glory to our God? What about the nation being turned around? What about the fact that we can make an impact in our community here? And before long, when we overcome by the cause, I want to tell you we prepared to pay the cost. We will never be significant until we understand that the cause is always greater than the cost. It's a great motto for um, Coast Guards, it simply says this, we have to go out, but we don't have to come back. I think that's a great motto for a church. We have to go out, but we don't have to come back. Listen, those Coast Guards could do that because they were living for a cause. I wonder if the band could come up now, please. They were living for a cause, and that cause was greater than the cost. And they were prepared to lay down their life for the cause. And friends, we need to be a people who choose to lay down our lives for the, cost, uh, for the cause. The cause is an immense cause. Immense cause. Let me conclude by saying this. If you are blindsided by the circumstances that you're in this morning, listen, refuse to bow down. Even when it gets worse, refuse to back off. Because eventually, you will be victorious because Christ has already won the battle. Listen, your circumstances do not have to have the final word on your destiny. The circumstances do not have the final word on your destiny. You have the final word on your destiny. You have the final word on your destiny. I have the final word on my destiny. And I want to suggest this morning that you and I should go for greatness and significance no matter what the cost is. We need to seize our Kairos moment. And who knows? Perhaps we have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Let's see where God would take us when we seize our Kairos moment.